Well, as you can see, Let's Be Fools is the title of today's sermon. Originally, I wanted to call this sermon, Let's All Be Morons, with exclamation marks. Uh, But I decided that that would uh, probably be a little bit too much. Now, uh, some of you may have noticed that I've now managed to still sneak that into the introduction. And because I said it that way, then, uh, you know, that softens the blow and softens the, the offense a little bit. But I did that because uh, I want you to feel the full force of that statement. You see, sometimes I think we can read the word full in the Bible, and to our modern ears, I think it can soften the blow. Interestingly, the the Greek word moros for fool in this passage is actually where we get the word moron in English. And even though uh, the definitions of both of those words have slightly different meanings. But I make that point to make you think. Are you willing to be called a fool for the sake of Christ? Are you willing to be called a fool for the sake of Christ? How much derision, how much putting down, how many derogatory names are you willing to be called for the sake of Christ? Because in this passage, we're going to see Paul call us once again to a faithful devotion to him that trusts in God's wisdom and not in human wisdom. And so this morning, as we work through this passage, I don't have any points, Uh, or at least I don't have any points that serve as titles. I certainly have points, and I hope you pick them up. I'll simply, though, walk through this passage and call us to consider this question. Are you willing to be called a fool for the sake of Christ? Please have your Bibles open as we go through it. And remember, you're welcome to keep one of those uh, blue Bibles as our gift to you if you don't have one. And as you already know, we're on page 100, uh, sorry, 555. So remember last week, we uh, talked about how we as the church are God's temple. That was the passage that Paul just Uh, that we looked at, and Paul has just talked about that, saying that God's Spirit dwells in us because we are God's temple, His church. And we also looked last week in verses 5 to 17 that Paul has just charged the elders and the teachers in particular to take care about what they built, that they need to build with gold, silver, and precious stones because their work will be tested by fire on that day. And now you can bet by this point in the letter that any pastor or teacher is hearing this message loud and clear. They're hearing that. And despite the fact that leaders were the main target in that section, we discussed also last week how that does have uh, things for us as members who aren't leaders or pastors to consider uh, our life's work. Well, I, I think here in this passage, that emphasis flips. Paul now addresses everybody Uh, in the passage that we're looking at today, even though, of course, what he's just said will still be ringing in the ears of the leaders. Uh, They'll they'll hear this with an even greater sense of responsibility. But in this passage now, what we will look at, uh, Paul will address the whole church. So let's now turn to our passage for today, from the start of verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. Let no one deceive himself. Paul begins uh, this section by issuing a warning. Let no one deceive himself. I mean, it's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Uh, On the surface, it makes sense. Uh, In fact, you know, on the surface, it's a bit of a a duh, don't you think? Seriously, uh, does anyone actually willingly deceive themselves? Is anybody trying to deceive themselves? Isn't that the point of deception, that people don't realize that they're being deceived? And so, in one sense, it's kind of like, well, of course no one's going to deceive themselves. Well, the background of this statement is likely, once again, the orators of Corinth that we've talked about as we have been discussing this book uh, and since we began this series. As Braden reminded us the other week, these famous public speakers, they would uh, come and blow into town and they had a a very uh, well-known reputation for how well they could make an argument in public. In fact, they would show how brilliant they were by being able to choose any topic. You could choose anything and they would say, well, I could convincingly argue how well, uh, convincingly argue this case as though I actually believed it. 
You know, just like in theatre sports, I don't know if you've ever been involved in that, it's all about improvisation where comedians and actors will act out a scene and they'll just throw to the audience and say, give me a scenario or give me a name or whatever, and they'll throw that out and they'll have to act out on that on the spot. Well, similarly, these, these speakers or these rhetoricians would show off how great their intellect was by being able to say, give me any topic and I will be able to uh, uh, construct an argument that will be so convincing that you'll believe it. They could sell ice to Eskimos. They could build a case for the unwinnable position. They probably would make great lawyers, I think. And yet, they were self-deceived because they trusted in their own ability to convince themselves and everyone else about their so-called wisdom. Well, not everybody's like that, though, are they? I mean, most people, you might think, they're honest folk, Surely most people aren't willfully deceiving themselves, especially if they're Christians. I mean, Christians can't be self-deceived, can they? They know the truth. Uh, God's taken the scales from their eyes. He's pulled them out of darkness. He's brought them into His light. Well, as we've established in previous weeks, this letter was written to a church a church that Paul genuinely believes is Christian. And so, yes, it is possible for a Christian to be self-deceived. And that's precisely why Paul gives us this imperative. He gives us this instruction. Because even as Christians, we can hoodwink ourselves. We can be self-deceived. Well, how does this happen, you might ask? Let's read on from the second half of verse 18. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Wise in this age. Here's the key to what it means to deceive yourself. It means to be wise in this age. To deceive yourself means to be wise in this era, to be wise in this life, to be wise in this time, in this now. That's what it means to self-deceive. Tell me something. Where do you turn to to find answers in life? Where do you turn to to find answers? Who are the experts that you most often turn to? We live in an era of experts, experts, don't we? I mean, there are that many PhDs floating around in the world that in order to get one, you have to study for years on the most specific niche, you know, it's a topic that literally nobody else knows about. And you have to write an 80,000-word thesis on it, which an average of seven people are going to read. And then you're the expert on that very refined niche particular thing. I mean, we live in this era where, where, you know, we hesitate to say anything unless we're actually the expert in the field. And, and actually, moreover, we're told to make sure we stay in our lanes and not comment on anything unless you are the expert. If you're not the expert, don't tell us what you think, because clearly you don't know. Now, this isn't necessarily a bad thing, but for us as Christians, it can undercut our confidence in the wisdom of God found in His Word. And that is what it means to become a fool in order that you may become wise. Paul is saying, become a fool in the eyes of the world so that you may become wise in the eyes of God. Become a fool in the eyes of the world so that you may become wise wise in the eyes of God. I must admit this is a temptation and a trap for me. Uh, I generally do my best to see things from other people's points of view, so because of that I find that I can actually be too soft on matters that the Bible speaks clearly about, and I find that I can be swayed by persuasive arguments because of that perspective. It makes me hesitant to say and to stand on what the Bible clearly says. 
A good example of this is in the area of mental health, or more specifically, in the areas of depression and anxiety. I understand that there are medical components of it and that I'm not an expert in that, and so I should be careful in what I comment on in that field. But at its core, how mental health is treated in our culture is at odds with the Bible. The major flaw in the secular approach is what is assumed to be true about human beings. After all, they say Mother Nature is a force without morals and human beings are simply the most advanced species to have evolved out of an ancient primordial soup. And so if you're struggling with anxiety or depression, then it has nothing to do with any kind of morality. If human beings are simply bags of molecules that are the end result of billions of chemical interactions that have been occurring over millions of years, and if the state that you find yourself in is simply the result of chemical imbalances in your brain or some environmental factors, then well, we, just, we just need to help you with that. You haven't done anything wrong. There's nothing wrong with you. We just need to trace the causes of mental health. We need to help you take care of yourself. We need to help you be more self-aware and discover something that you can live for and so on and so forth. Now, hear me out. I'm not trying to offer a simplistic solution. I'm not about to suggest that the Bible has a, a silver bullet answer to these very real difficulties and very real struggles that people have. I have close Christian friends who grapple with these very things. It is complex. But we need to realize that the Bible is not silent about these things. Because ultimately, what is at the root of many people's struggles when it comes to their difficulty and, and their grappling with mental health problems is the same thing that is at the root of almost all of our struggles. Our own sin. Our own hearts and their tendency to deny the goodness of God or the sovereignty of God or the joy that we find in Him. Do you believe that? And if so, is that what you point people to when they come to you with these sorts of struggles? When somebody comes to you with a, a deep personal issue or a significant, significant spiritual wound, do you seek to apply the salve of Scripture to their souls? Or are you more prone to tell them to just go and see the experts? Now, I'm aware that I'm skating on thin ice here. This is something that uh, is front of mind in our society, and I'm aware that I can be blasted for saying something like this. I can hear people already saying to me, you're, you're not a psychologist, you're not a mental health expert, you have no right, you have no expertise and no place to be talking about these things. And yet, isn't this exactly what it means to become a fool, that we may become wise? If you believe that the Bible does indeed speak to these matters, if you believe that the Bible gives counsel and hope and perhaps even loving correction to people who are in need in these situations, then isn't this exactly what Paul is saying here? When God's Word reveals to us His wisdom about anything in life, it is the expert. Let me say that again. When God's Word reveals to us His wisdom about anything in life, then it is the expert. Because God's the expert. I mean, it seems silly to say, and yet so easily we forget it. If God has created and ordered this world, and if He's spoken to us in the Bible, then surely the Bible is the highest expert authority that we can appeal to. Isn't it? Now, once again, hear me out. We need to carefully and wisely consider all that the Bible has to say and all that God has revealed in His creation as we think about these things. I'm not advocating for simplistic, Bible-sounding, pat answers to complicated matters. 
But once you have done that, once you have continued to seek Scripture, to seek God's wisdom, when you are convinced, when you know that the Bible does teach something, then that foundational point remains the same. That God is the expert. And His Word is the expert on all that He has revealed to us in it. Are you willing to go with what the Bible says about anything it teaches and be labelled a fool for going with it? Are you willing to subordinate findings of the world, no matter what field they come from, whether science or philosophy or psychology or personal experience, to the truth of Scripture? Do you trust God enough to do that? If you want to be counted wise in this age, wise in your own eyes, and wise amongst your non-Christian friends, then that will never be your desire. If you'd rather keep deceiving yourself and thinking of yourself as wise, then you'll always be looking for ways to reshape Christianity or try and talk about it differently so that it seems smart and appealing to others. If you want to chase down the wisdom of the world, then there will always be an instinct in you that even though you might believe in the Bible, you might believe it's true, you might want to live by it, there will always be an instinct that pushes you in the direction of wanting to make the Bible's message more palatable for people. There'll always be an instinct that'll make you want to smooth over the rough edges and perhaps maybe even bend it a little so that it's just not so offensive. I mean, this is the same instinct that drove the seeker-sensitive movement, which still drives many churches today. Churches adopt ministry philosophies that say that seekers don't want to be offended, that we should make church services as comfortable as possible and not talk about the culturally offensive parts of the Bible like hell and sin and what it teaches about sex. Without realizing it, these churches have bought into the wisdom of the world. Now, of course, I'm not saying we need to swing in the opposite direction and, hey, let's just be offensive for the sake of it. Let's put more on in the introduction. But we need to always remember that the gospel is going to be offensive. It is, after all, the message that every single human being on the planet is dead in sin and destined for hell which is God's righteous judgment of our sin, and that we have inherited this condition because of our first parents, Adam and Eve, choosing to disobey God in the Garden of Eden. And the only solution to that problem, the only way to escape that wrath, is to put your trust in Jesus, the God-man who was born of a Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified on a Roman cross for your sin and for mine, so that through faith in Him, we might be declared righteous before God, all as an act of God's marvelous grace. That's the gospel. And there are at least a dozen things in that, in what I just said, that are going to be considered seriously dumb and offensive by many people. Perhaps you even find some of that to be dumb. I encourage you to follow that up because if that message is indeed true, then there is nothing more important in your life to deal with. And the gospel is just the beginning. I mean, expand that out to the rest of the Bible and to what the rest of the Bible teaches about a whole host of things and you've got yourself a recipe for being laughed at. Are you willing to be called a fool for the sake of Christ? Because those who aren't self-deceived, those who are followers of Christ, they, they are willing. John Calvin puts it like this. He, therefore, on the other hand, is a fool in this world who, renouncing his own understanding, allows himself to be directed by the Lord as if with his eyes shut. Who, distrusting himself, leans wholly 
upon the Lord, places his whole wisdom in him and yields himself up to God in docility and submission. It is necessary that our wisdom should in this way vanish in order that the will of God may have authority over us and that we may be and that we be emptied of our own understanding that we may be filled with the wisdom of God. You see, there's only one option for the believer. Because we're so prone to deceiving ourselves, because we're so prone to to wanting the wisdom of the world, we must renounce our own understanding and allow ourselves to be directed by the Lord. I don't know about you, but I'm not a huge fan of being blindfolded. My kids blindfolded me for Father's Day and they led me through Kaz to surprise me with my Father's Day gift, which was a gift card at Time Zone. It's a great gift to give to your dad because that everybody gets to enjoy it. You know, it's kind of thrilling to be blindfolded. I, I kind of like that whole vibe of, hey, I can't see, I've got to trust everybody around me and I've sort of got to feel my way. But also, when I'm blindfolded, I'm always waiting for that pole to just smack me in the head. You know. Do you feel this way about letting God lead you? Are you waiting for Him to lead you into a manhole or into a brick wall or into some other humiliating accident? I mean, the image is, is so appropriate, isn't it? What are Christians called these days? Narrow-minded, anti-science, ignorant, old-fashioned, regressive. And you know, the ironic thing is that God delights in that description. He laughs at the so-called wisdom of people. Now, I'm not suggesting that you wear those descriptions with pride. That would be a terrible thing. But it does make me smile a little to think that Christians who are often thought of as people who have blindfolds on their eyes... There's a great irony in that because, in a way, we do. We do have blindfolds on our eyes. And that's because we know that our hearts are sinful. We know that our wisdom is warped. We know that we can't be confident in our own cleverness to find true wisdom. And so we cover up our own meager attempts to see clearly and we hold out our hands and we cry out to God to lead us, to give us wisdom, to be considered fools in this world in order that we may become truly wise. Will we be a church like that? Will we be a church that rejects what conventional wisdom says a church should be? that rejects the worldly wisdom that says churches should be more about doing good in society or running soup kitchens or trying to solve social problems. I pray that we would be a church that continues to learn to distrust its own smarts and let God lead us with the wisdom of His Word. Because, as verse 19 says, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. The wisdom of this world is folly with God. As you might remember, and as Beck already read out for us this morning, this is really Paul just coming back to something that he's already laid out in his letter. He says almost the exact same thing in 1 Corinthians 1.20. And the more fleshed out definition of wisdom that Paul gives in chapter 1 is that the wisdom of God is the word of the cross. And the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And so in order to grow in wisdom, we as Christians must grow in the gospel. This is yet another reminder of why we preach the gospel each week in our sermons. We preach the word of the cross. That's why we've named our church Emmaus Road, because Jesus taught those two disciples on that road in Luke 24 that all Scripture points to Him and to what He has done. If you want to grow in wisdom, if you want to stop being self-deceived, if you want to be wise in God's eyes, then you need to bask and soak 
in the gospel, which is found in his word. And you need to read the wisdom God has already given us in the Bible. Maybe you struggle with that. Maybe you find it difficult to believe God's wisdom. Maybe you find it difficult to want God's wisdom. You find it difficult to, to read and hear and desire the words of the Bible. Well, brothers and sisters, you're not going to find His wisdom compelling. You're not going to find the world's wisdom foolish if you're spending more time in the world's wisdom than in God's. You need to be in the Word. And here, at the start of a new year, is the perfect time to make that happen. Now, I'm not saying make a New Year's resolution to read more of the Bible, because worldly wisdom of New Year's resolutions has proven to be a monumental failure, right? I'm saying make a life resolution to keep at it. Let us, as a church, do all that we can to help you with that. We'll do whatever it takes for you to continue to soak in the wisdom of God. We'll give you Bible reading plans. We'll help keep you accountable. We can help talk to you about that. We'll, we'll sit and read it with you. Whatever you need to grow in the wisdom of God and to shun the folly of the world's wisdom, I and the pastors of our church would happily assist you with that. Husbands, Lead your homes in this. Wives, encourage your husbands to lead your family in this. Children, plead with your parents to teach you the wisdom of God. I know how hard this can be. I know this is daunting for some of us. I remember saying to a group of young people just a couple of years ago how, you know, I was still trying to develop good Bible reading habits and prayer habits. And one of them said to me, haven't you been saying this for years? She was right. I had been. Decades even. The reality was that I hadn't realized that I was starving myself spiritually by not diving into the Bible every day. And it grieves me to think of how many years I've wasted prioritizing the wisdom of the world over God's wisdom. Now know that there is grace. <laughs> You'll continue to stumble. You'll continue to struggle. I still do. I stumbled. I failed this week. And yet I'm not hamstrung by that thought. I'm not crippled by the guilt of that because of the grace of God. But I see now the folly of neglecting God's Word in my life for so long, and I want more than ever to grow in God's wisdom. Do whatever it takes. And I guarantee that as you devote yourself to this, you'll become more and more comfortable with people thinking you're stupid and blindfolded for believing this book is the very words of God. Oh, that we would be a church that lives according to God's wisdom in His Word, that runs to it in all of life's circumstances, that applies it to one another's lives, that seeks it out firstly and foremostly. May we be a church of God's fools. Paul goes on to show why the wisdom of the world is folly with God by quoting a couple of Old Testament verses. Let's have a look at verse 19. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. These two quotes here are from Job chapter 5, verse 13, and Psalm 94, verse 11, on the screen there. The great irony of the first quote from Job is that it's actually Eliphaz speaking, who is one of Job's three friends who are supposedly wise. And yet, here he is actually issuing something that is true. 
And yet, at the end of the book, God catches him out in his worldly wisdom. And so, funnily enough, even though Job's friends manage to say true things, ultimately, God reveals and shows that their wisdom is based on human wisdom. And the particular truth that Paul is saying here that Eliphaz grasps is this fact that God's wisdom catches and shows where human wisdom is foolishness. This idea is all throughout the Bible, that God is wise, you know, and human wisdom is foolishness, particularly in the Old Testament. And Paul obviously quotes another example here. He replaces man, uh, as you can see, if you compare that to the passage in front of you, he replaces man with the wise, and that's because the context of Psalm 94 is talking about foolish people. And so Paul uh, makes that clear to make his point. And here he also quotes uh, what's called the Septuagint, also known as the LXX, which was a common Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it translates what we have in our Bibles as but, a, but as a breath, but a breath. Paul quotes it as futile. Either way, the point is clear, isn't it? God's wisdom goes far beyond man's wisdom and the two aren't even in the same league. As a matter of fact, it only flows one way. (laughs) Earlier in this letter, as we looked at a few weeks ago, Paul has talked about how people can only possibly know God if God reveals Himself to us. No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And it's the Spirit of God that reveals God's thoughts to us. And yet, in these passages that Paul quotes, he shows that the opposite is not true. Here in in, in verse 19, you think God can't know your thoughts unless you tell Him? That's wrong. He can, and He does. You can't hide those thoughts from God. And ultimately, if you trust in your wisdom you will be caught out. No matter how wise your thoughts might seem now, they will be proven to be foolishness and futility when forever begins. Can you see how great a contrast that is? God's wisdom is unknowable unless He reveals it to us. And yet, He knows all our thoughts and our wisdom and it is foolishness compared to His. Well, you might say, Yes, but that's just your opinion. How do you know that you, what you think about the Bible is right and that all of these other thousands of scholars and that guy on YouTube are saying is wrong? How do you know that you're not just viewing the Bible with human wisdom? Well, I have two responses. Firstly, I'm always open to being corrected. I don't assume I know everything there is to know about the Bible, nor do I assume that everything I think about the Bible is correct. As a matter of fact, I think the opposite. I I assume there are things I think about the Bible that are incorrect. And that's why I keep reading. That's why I'll keep reading it till the day I die. And yet I also trust God when He says that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching Reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16 And I also trust that God has made it clear enough for us to understand its most important truths. That those who build their understanding of Scripture from the wisdom of the cross, from the message of the Gospel, will be able to interpret it rightly. And this has been described by theologians as the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture. And perspicuity is just an old school word meaning clarity. The clarity of Scripture. It's the conviction that ordinary people using ordinary means are able to read and understand the Bible. That it's clear enough to grasp what it's saying. Now, if you've read the Bible, you'll know that there are things that are difficult to understand. And this doctrine doesn't assume that every part of it is just as straightforward to understand as other parts. That's true. But it does mean that the Bible's main message and its most important truths are plain. And I dare say that some of the difficulty that we have is often birthed from the fact that we have had 
uh, wrong ideas about Scripture actually taught to us? Which kind of brings me to my second response. Which is that, to that charge, I think one of the reasons that so many people and scholars disagree about what the Bible says is because, ironically, they have tried to interpret it using the world's wisdom. And the only way you can arrive at views that suggest that Jesus dying on the cross for our sin is divine child abuse, or that Jesus never actually rose from the dead, or that you're not rich or healthy because you don't have enough faith, is if you read against the grain of what the Bible itself is actually saying. Such views come from inserting interpretations and ideas that are foreign to the original context of the Bible and end up warping its original meaning, thus warping its meaning for us today. Those would be my responses. And having said all of that, continuing the dual prong, you should be challenged and encouraged. You should be challenged because it means you don't need to be an expert in the Bible in order to understand it. Yes, you might need to unlearn some things you previously thought about it. Yes, God gave us His church and elders to correct and help one another when we're blinded by our own sin. But you are able to explore its depths by simply reading it, whether you are 5 or 85 or 105. And you should be encouraged. Because it means you don't need to be an expert in the Bible in order to understand it. If something doesn't make sense, persist. Keep reading the Word. Carve out more time for it. Carve out more time to read it with other church members. Ask questions of your elders. Engage with one another over this wisdom that God has given us. And please, learn from my example. And don't neglect this fount of wisdom and live to regret it. It was only by God's grace that I didn't fall into a trap of self-deception in those lean years of Bible reading. Don't actively put yourself in that position. Because doing so will eventually see you become wise in the world's eyes, but a fool in God's. Paul draws a conclusion from these facts of God's wisdom and the world's folly by giving the Corinthians this instruction in verse 21. So let no one boast in men. Well, after all that he said, boasting in people would probably be a really dumb thing to do. (laughs) He's made it clear, hasn't he? The wisdom of people is foolishness. And yet that's been the point Paul's been making all along in these first few chapters of this letter. He's already talked about how silly it is to boast in certain teachers. He's already said in 1 Corinthians 1.31 that if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. And so here he gives the negative and says, don't boast in people. He's made that case in this passage. He talks about how God's, even, sorry, even in chapter 1, he talks about how God's foolishness is wiser than man's wisdom. So what does it look like for us to not boast in people? To not boast in human wisdom? Well, for starters, we don't boast in certain teachers. Uh, Like I said a few weeks ago, we call ourselves Christians, meaning we follow Christ, not any particular teacher, not any particular great uh, um, teacher. (laughs) Martin Luther, he actually has a great quote about this. Have a listen. when people started calling themselves Lutherans. The first thing I ask is that people should not make use of my name and should not call themselves Lutherans, but Christians. What is Luther? The teaching is not mine, nor was I crucified for anyone. St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 would not tolerate Christians calling themselves Pauls or Peters, but only Christians. How do I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name. Now, I think some labels can be helpful in defining what we mean, 
like Calvinist or Baptist. But you get his point. He's saying, don't call yourself after me because you are not mine. You don't belong to me. That's the first way that we can not boast in people. Ensuring that we boast only in Christ. Ensuring that we boast only in knowing Him and in being His. Another way that it applies to us, I'll get to in the next section. Which makes sense because Paul actually ties what he says next to what he's just said about not boasting in men. Let's have a read from the second half of verse 21. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. For all things are yours. Don't boast in men because all things are yours. Well, what on earth does that mean? (laughs) It was comforting to me to know uh, when I heard from some of us this week that I wasn't the only one who wondered what that phrase meant. I'm sure plenty of people have misinterpreted it to mean that you can have whatever you want, that all are yours. And just as a side note, if you want to build your own Christian-sounding religion, then the easiest way to do it is to grab a few verses, pull them out of their context, and make them say something else that you want them to say. But no, that's not what this verse means. That's not even remotely in the realm of what Paul's trying to say. And so what is he saying? What's the link? Why does he say, for, because all things are yours? And yours, by the way, here is once again plural. So he's clearly talking to the entire church, not individuals. What makes it to the list of all those things that the Corinthians, and by extension, all churches now possess? Let's have a look. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, the world, life, death, the present, the future. All are yours, he reiterates. Well, and then he goes on and says, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This whole thought, these verses are connected. Paul is ever expanding his perspective till he can go no further. He keeps zooming out till he reaches the one to whom everything belongs, which is, of course, God. So let's start from him and let's work our way back in. We know from Scripture and even from this passage that we looked at last week that everything is God's. 1 Corinthians 3, 9. And so everything belongs to him. Well, what else belongs to him? And Paul says, Christ belongs to him. And what does that mean? Well, we know, again, from Scripture and even from this letter, that it doesn't mean that Jesus is somehow less than God. A Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness will try to pull together certain texts like this to try and make that case. But Paul makes clear, even in 1 Corinthians 2.16, that Jesus is part of the Godhead by equating Him with the God of the Old Testament. He says that Christ has revealed the mind of God. And so Paul's point here is that Christ belongs to God in the sense that He obeyed the Father. He did His will. Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane before He went to the cross, not my will, but yours be done. So Christ is God's, and whose are we? We are Christ's. Of course, we still belong to God. Paul's made that point. But we are Christ's because it is through Him that we may be reconciled with the Father. It's through Him that we find salvation for our sin, and in Him that we continue to live, being made more and more like Him each day. And so because we are Christ's, and because through Christ we are God's, And because everything belongs to God, all is ours. Well, you might say, thanks for stepping out that logic for us, JR. But that still doesn't answer the question. (laughs) What does it mean that all is ours? Well, let's think about the context. Paul has just been talking about how the wisdom of people is foolishness to God. He's just said that no one should boast in such people, in such so-called 
wisdom. And the reason he's given for that instruction is all things belong to those who are in Christ. His point is that if you are in Christ, you belong to no one else. If our church belongs to Christ, then we belong to no one else. You can't say, I belong to Paul or I belong to Apollos because such people can't claim their own followings. Even the best teachers in the world that have ever existed can't claim anything or anyone for themselves, even if a whole denomination does end up being named after them. They own nothing. You are not theirs, Paul says, so don't be a fool and boast in them. God owns everything. And if you are God's, then nothing else owns you. God owns everything, and if you are God's, then nothing owns you. That's what Paul is getting at here. That's why we don't boast in teachers. That's why one of the implications of this fact is that you should never assume that whatever I or any of our elders says is right. Hang on, what? Did you, did you just say that? Yes, you should never just think, oh, I know Braden's done the thinking, or JR's getting paid, or he will soon get paid uh, to think about these things, so it must be true. No. Be like the Bereans. Search the Scriptures. Remember, we as elders, we as teachers of the Word, we have no inherent authority over you. None. Our words carry no authority. They aren't infallible. They are not without error. But God does have authority. And His Word does carry authority. And it is infallible. And it is without error. And so, of course, as long as what I'm saying or what our elders are saying is an accurate interpretation of the Bible, an accurate application of the Bible in your life, then yes, you should listen to us because we are helping you to understand and apply it. But remember that the authority is not in us. It's in Him. And when the Bible says that all is yours, God is reminding you that you don't follow any human. That no human has a hold on you. No human controls you. Christianity can and should never be a cult because it is only God to whom you belong. And then there's, and that's the point of the rest of this list. The world, life, death, the present, the future. Nothing owns you. Nothing controls you. You need not fear any of these things because you are Christ's and He owns everything. Does this world or does this life still worry you? Are you joining in with the chorus of people who are singing, farewell 2020, good riddance to a horrible year, and say hello to a new one, 2021, filled with optimism? Are you putting your hope in the change of a Gregorian calendar year? Because that would be trusting in worldly wisdom. To boast in God and to live by His wisdom is to know that neither teacher, nor world, nor life, nor death, nor the present, nor the future has any hold on you. Because you are Christ's and Christ is God's and everything Everything is God's. Trust in Him 
and not in anything else. That may seem like backwards wisdom. Some would even say that that is foolishness. But it is God's wisdom. Are you willing to become a fool in the eyes of the world in order that you might become wise in the eyes of God? I pray that we would be a church of God's fools, trusting not in the foolishness of the world, trusting not in the so-called wisdom of man, but pleading with God to lead us in His wisdom, in His Word. Let's pray. Our good, gracious, great, glorious Heavenly Father, we praise you for your wisdom. We thank you that you have revealed it to us, that you have revealed yourself in Jesus, that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. God, help us to live in that light of that reality. May we forsake the wisdom of the world so that we may be wise in your eyes. In Jesus' name, amen.